Welcome to the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. So today is our fourth and final episode in the Life Story Chronicles of one <laughs> Michael dun, dun, Wands, dun. Wansley. Dun, dun, dun. We had Wands to the sequel. Well, first we had Wands. Mm-hmm. Then we had Wands to the sequel. Mm-hmm. Then we had the Revenge of the Wands. <laughs> and now... I don't know what we're going to call this one, but we're having some fun. So, Mike, welcome back. What? I don't know. The Revenge of the Wands. Yeah, I don't know. So, baby baby wands. (laughs) No, you are. Okay. So, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Where were we? Well, we had kind of ended up, I think, on the Ghetto Monks and had kind of completed that chapter of your journey yeah they uh we we kind of did that until 94 i think um or excuse me until 2004 yeah 2004 or so and i just kind of hung out and no uh no wait a minute what was going on well in 95 it was the launch of windows 95 that was a big deal in your musical career Uh, yeah (laughs) Yeah, but you know the the, the <laughs> let's see. Uh, buh, 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 buh. So yeah, we dropped Pop Vulture, our our, our produced record in two thousand, I believe, and that was the year that I got a I got my first testing gig at Microsoft because I couldn't drive anymore. The kids were getting too big, and you know I wasn't making enough money. Of course, in the relationship I was in, it's like Jesus, I could. I could have won the lotto and it wouldn't have been enough money. And it was never enough money. But anyway, uh, so it's like 2000. I started dabbling in other things since ghetto monks weren't playing that often. And a friend of mine suggested that I go and sing for this other band. It was a, it was an old school nineties uh, R and B band. I auditioned and I got in, and thus I became a frontline singer with Groovebox. And uh, that was kind of a new experience for me. The drummer's a monster. The keyboard player's a monster. The drummer, or I mean, the bass player was a monster. And the singer, there was a guitar player. I think his name was Brian. He was okay. But man, the singers were just hit and miss. Some days, some days we were fantastic. Other days we were like not couldn't hit the broadside of a barn it was so weird but we got we got to go places and um the thing i remember most about Groovebox, not only was it a lot of fun because you know we were dancing on stage and stuff like that and things were kind of choreographed and, and the personalities involved were way different from the rock world i mean these these guys all came from the jazz and hip-hop world and, and you know i could fit in anywhere so it was no big deal i mean the bass player has a great voice, so it's like there are even a couple of tunes that I went back and played bass, and he came out and sang, and it's like, oh, girls are like, oh, I'm like sitting back next to the drummer shaking my head. It's hilarious. <laughs> but we got to go places, and um, the funnest show that we ever, that we had, we had a, a standing gig from spring to autumn to play every five weeks, I think it was every five weeks, at uh, this place in Spokane Valley called Good Times. And I thought it was dope because, you know, it had, like, 
cars coming out of the top of it. Half a car was a half of a, <laughs> okay. half of a, a 63 Cadillac sticking out the building. So that was dope. But I'd also just given up drinking. And uh, one of this was like one of my first tests. I, I you know, drinking and music kind of went together like inhale, exhale for me. And uh, we're doing this Spokane thing. And I remember being on stage and I'm newly sober like months, you know, maybe like two or three months sober. Sure enough, man, get done with the first set. And here comes the tray. Here comes the tray. Seven shots of Jägermeister for the band. And I'm like, I really like Jägermeister. But at the time, I had a sponsor who was pretty brilliant. And he says, you know, until, I'll never forget this, until they invent a glass that'll climb up your chest and pour itself down your throat, you never, ever have to take a drink ever again, even when you want to. So those words, as the, as the tray got set at the end of the stage, I'm sitting on the little the little riser that the drum set's on, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just sitting there. And I, and I, I start, you know, after about two or three minutes, it, it, I started laughing because I was, I was running it in my head like, like, a, like a Looney Tunes cartoon. You know, stare at the glass long enough, and all of a sudden, two legs will pop out, two arms will pop out, a head will come out, and it's coming. <laughs> and that, exactly you know and it's like i caught myself thinking that and it's like oh okay and really there haven't there hasn't i've never i've never relapsed i've never slipped up i've never never gone back to it after i after that almost every gig became the same i'd find someone who just came in at the beginning of the night and then i'd watch him and as they drank i could see them change and it was, I mean, it was never a disappointment, especially when we came back to, to good times. I mean, good times, it was like, huh, we, we started taking bets in the band. The keyboard player and I would like bet and go, I go, see that couple over there? They're going to be separated by the end of the night. And we'd bet, <laughs> we'd bet like a, you know, a happy meal or some shit. And it was dope because he was right more than I was, but it was just so fun. He thought it was like the most amazing thing that we could tell who was going to get too loaded and get into a fight and who was going to leave with another dude or leave with another girl. It was awesome. So how long were you in Groovebox? Uh, two and a half years, almost three right. years. And, you know, it's just, it just started to get old and in the sense that I wanted to do more original stuff, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I'd been dabbling it with, with stuff at home, learning sequencers and, or trying to learn sequencers, thinking I was sort of good at it. Eh. So I just kind of dabbled in little things for about two or three years. Yeah, about two years. And then um, a DP from, from Life Ring got in touch with me, and he was now playing with a guy named Robert Stewart. And they were doing uh, Blue Eyed Soul. They were doing like soul music from Stacked Motown type mm-hmm. blues and uh i sat in with them and it was like really fun and so we started kind of working stuff up with our drummer sandy and it was called the west side we called ourselves the west side five and why uh, that name um actually no this wasn't robert stewart this was before him so there was dp on guitar we had a keyboard player a drummer 
can't remember who was playing bass, but I was just singing. So there were five of us. Hence, okay. Let's Side Five. Let's go, let's go. You know, I hate I hate band names. I hate band names and band pictures are like the biggest waste of time to me. Because, you know, it doesn't matter what the name of the group is if it doesn't sound good. It doesn't matter what the group looks like if it doesn't sound good. Well, I've always thought that there was one band name that no, the band could be terrible and they would do really well. And that is if they were named Free Beer. Yeah, you sound like Ken Brooks back in the day. Yeah, I mean, that would be a name that, you know, people would show up for. Disappointed, or nonetheless. So yeah. In Ellensburg, that would have worked. Yeah, I think it for a lot of people wanted to name the band Rocks and then go out to the canyon where you know the, the sign, the triangle or the diamond shaped yellow sign that has rocks coming down the thing, just stand in front of the sign, scratching her head. Rocks, what that's the name of the band, okay? Yeah, you should not be naming a band. We were educated, yeah, yes, yes. I hate band names, I hate band names, but you know, West Side Five was you know, there's five of us and we practiced in West Seattle. Made sense to me. They're like, okay. So that kind of ran for about a year. That And then that kind of fell apart. And then in 2007, and 2007, West Side Five had been broken up for a few months. DP went and played with Robert Stewart, and they wanted to add a bass player. So in the middle of... It was funny because... Rob had um, a band. What was the name of that band? Him and Keith and Cameron. They were in this three-piece, and Cameron played a djembe. He didn't have a traditional drum set. But they had this perennial gig. I mean, they played almost. They played pretty much every Tuesday night at the Paragon on top of Queen Anne Hill. So they were like the house band. Uh, what was it? what was it? it? Starts with an F. Themed? No. Fierce? No. Fiasco. He had a group yeah. called Yeah. The Fiasco was the name. And uh, Keith, the, the guitar player, was this, you know, it's basically it's take a heavy metal drummer and give him a acoustic guitar. So you play all these chords, but in between playing the chords, he'd be... And then you give him a, a, a whole pedal board and he, you know, there's loops and all sorts of... He had all kinds of toys. It was great. But Rob kind of wanted to strip that down. They played a lot of originals, and they were, I thought they were good. I think Rob Stewart is like one of the most underrated songwriters that I know. I think he's a really good songwriter. But he wanted to do more of the Blue Eyed Soul thing, like, you know, um, sort of along the lines of, of, of uh, uh Notes, that kind mm-hmm. of Blue Eyed Soul. Right. Mm-hmm. And then mix in, you know, do I got sunshine on a cloudy day. Right. And we per, we kind of had our own perennial gig out at what used to be the Kirkland Roaster, but is now known as so it's an Irish joint. Which I can't believe the name escapes me. God, we played out there sometimes twice a month. Yeah. You guys were there a lot. I saw you guys play there a number of times and, uh, you were, that was, that group was always really entertaining. Yeah. It was fun. Mm-hmm. John, you know, I, I, like I said, Rob's a good singer and, and, you know, having a band without a drum set was kind of a novelty. You know, where's your drummer? 
He's right there. Where's his drum kit? It's that thing. <laughs> so he had a hi-hat, a cymbal, and the drum. And he could simulate all the other sounds. It was awesome. It was, you know, I'd never been in something like that. So I just had, I got to play bass again. And, you know, we were doing songs that, we were doing songs that I, I knew, but I had never really played or messed around with before. So it was, it was cool. And um, what is the name of that place? <laughs> I might have to look it up. Uh, well, we have technology with us, so we can do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I hate it when things bug me like this. It's going to be stupid. Stupid for me. Kirkland. Most. Nope. Can't remember. Okay. No, well, anyway, so that band was like going gangbusters, but you know, we were, Rob and I, like we did some of his originals from fiasco and, and I, I wanted to write some stuff, but I didn't think I could play guitar very well. Mm-hmm. And he made me want to mess around with it. That's why I now have an acoustic guitar is because of him. I have the same acoustic guitar, the same model that he has, because I thought, you know, if I just get the guitar, I know all these songs, you know, it's like, I'll just teach myself time in a bottle or teach myself all these old 70s songs that I sing all the time. Mm-hmm. And there was that, that little part where it's like, I pick up the guitar and I would learn, I, I would hear the tune in my head. And then I had to match the chords and these things, these fingers didn't always go where they were supposed to, so the, the chords didn't sound very good. So then I get discouraged and put the guitar down and go watch television. Okay. Been that way ever since. Long gone are the days that I would I remember I remember I taught myself the Range Hoods Rough Town album, the whole album, one Saturday afternoon. Really? Yep. I started at like ten thirty AM. And I sat, I was living behind Gerald's in my little apartment behind Gerald's bookstore. Mm-hmm. And it was a sunny day. I was just, I don't know if I was, I was probably hungover, but I would, I learned every single song on that record. Okay. And played it. I could play it. Did, did you ever play at the Wild Rover in Kirkland? That's what it was. That's what the Kirkland Roaster turned into the Wild Rover. Very good. Very good. Here to help. Thank you. You know, you know what they call them now? Hmm. Senior moments. Moving right along. Moving right uh, along. Yeah, <laughs> I'll start reciting the Prevagen commercials. And yeah, no. <laughs> it was just for me. So that was the band that, you know, it, 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 we went for two, we went for like three years, three or four years. Because, you know, and it started to get a little stale, you know, times change and, and, you know, people's tastes change and crowds and bars aren't always recyclable. And the DJs had really eaten into a lot of the, the casuals, right? So, you know, why would you hire a four piece band and pay them $600 when you could hire a DJ and he'll play all the songs in the world for 150 bucks? And they'll sound exactly like they were because they were the songs. Exactly. So we kind of, we started taking hits uh, due to the economic, the economics of things. And that was right about the time. And see, I left Microsoft in 2010 
and got another job working for a medical software company uh, in downtown Seattle, which for me was wonderful because I didn't have to take the 545. For those of you who don't know, there's a Metro bus line that goes from downtown Seattle out to Overlake, which is where Microsoft is. So for about six years, every day, I'd have to take a bus from Shoreline downtown, catch the 545 out to Kirkland. Uh, I spent easy three hours a day just in commute time. Easy. So I was looking forward to not having to do that. I'd just go downtown, walk a block, boom, I'm at work. <laughs> it was so cool. And uh, not only that, but the people that I worked with were really, really cool. The product was really, really dope. And, and you know, I was really starting to, I was like, cool, this is like really cool. I'd been out of uh, that relationship for a while and kind of gotten my feet sturdy. And, um, this job allowed me to like get, get right, get my money right. Um, the second year or the, I worked there for a year, five months in me working there, I actually had gotten to the point where I could go to a car dealership, test drive a car, came in, signed a piece of paper, drove off the car, drove off of the car. I was like, what? That's, you know, one of those things. It's like, 51 years old, I finally bought my own car. 50. 50. It's cracking. Yeah. Yeah. I was I was amazed. I was amazed. That was the day after St. Patrick's Day in 2011. So during that time, weren't you also like appearing on songs for people singing hooks? Well, the hook, the hook, the hook thing actually started in 2000, right when I got sober, because the person that I was living with at that time was working at a grocery, a, a large grocery store and they had a deli and she was working in the deli with this guy who was a rapper. Well, after they got to know each other, she told him about me and I met him and he asked me to sing on one of his songs and he, I did not know that he was part of a, a group, you know, Everybody, uh, there's a troop. Some rap, some rap groups are troops, right? The the, yeah. the big comparison is like Wu Tang, right? Wu Tang is its own group, and then individuals like RZA and all they all have their own side gigs, right? Well, okay. up here that was full time soldiers, and there were five other guys. There were five of the five of the five of the nine guys and full time so- soldiers were starting to branch out and do their own stuff. So I kind of went from guy to guy to guy walk in and they'd never seen anybody who could walk into a studio and it's like here are the words and do this and you know they couldn't sing so it's like i'd come up with something right there on the spot and we'd get it hone it craft it till they, till they liked it and then i went in the studio and just laid it down and it's like you're you're gonna do all these harmonies yeah i can do all these harmonies. Boom, 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 boom. and they're like oh my god how do you do that and i go how do you come up with rhymes for five minutes Everybody has a gift, I guess. Mm-hmm. But uh, with those guys, I got labeled in the underground as Nate Dog of the Northwest. Because that's, you know, I was singing pretty much low to medium uh, stuff, right? 
that gig kind of petered out in 2003, 2000, between 2003 and 2005 with the rise of Usher, Usher, Usher. Because he's a high singer, right? So guys wanted cats that could sing like Usher. Mm -hmm. It wasn't me, so work kind of fell off. But I still kept in touch with a lot of these cats and the engineer. And, you know, so every once in a while he'd call me in for a session and I'd go in and, you know, and that's a quick 200 bucks or a quick 150 bucks, you know. So how long are these sessions? I mean, I know that's a, a very vague question. But, I mean, yeah. sometimes, sometimes, I mean, it would go like this. It could go anywhere from the the feature, the, 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 the rapper has written one verse, doesn't have a chorus, doesn't have a hook, wants me to write the hook. So we'll spend 45 minutes because I'm trying to ask him what the song's about, just listening to the music, and I'll write out something, and then we can go from there. Sometimes uh, they try to sing the hook, and I just need to learn what they did and improve it, you know, make it more quality. And then there were other times where there were just lyrics, and we had to make those work. So it was a whole bunch of things. You know, you had to be flexible. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and it was it was nice because most of the time they understood what they were getting into because I mean, they knew I knew if I was going into the lab, if I was going into the studio, I knew I was going to make money because they mm-hmm. knew they had to pay me. And all mm-hmm. these guys at the time, they were either running dope girls, guns, or they were in jail. Okay. It's crazy. Go to the studio oh. one week, sing for a guy, come back like three weeks later, whatever happened to so-and-so. Oh, he's locked up. What do you do? Oh, you got popped. <laughs> it was so weird. So how many how many songs do you think you did this on? Um so the stuff that came out of uh yeah, I guess I could bury that hatchet. So the guy, the guy who was he used to be a rapper in full-time soldiers and ended up being the producer, and his name is D Sane. Mm-hmm. And um, he had his own label. He had, he was, you know, everybody was recording on his label and he was releasing stuff. And it, it kind of had this distinct sound. It was very different from downtown, but it was pounding. I mean, make your trunk rattle type stuff, which was his moniker. So he got the reputation of being extremely, an extremely talented engineer. And I, you know, I can't take that away from him. He is. He's really good. Really, really good. Not the best person when it comes to, like, being personal with. He didn't have the best personality in the world. You know, he'd get in regular beefs with somebody about something. You know, I'd see him at the studio and sing for him and then come back two weeks later. Yeah, that guy's a fuckhead, fucking asshole, did this, you know. And, you know, they're, they're beefing. And then six weeks later back in the lab again <laughs> same thing okay. all over again so every once in a while i'd hang out at these saints and, and watch him do his thing and that's where i really started getting curious about production because i really liked i mean i really liked hip-hop beats i wasn't real crazy about the content of what the rappers were doing but it was you know i started having this notion of putting songs on top of those types of beats just my type of songs and i'd started writing um, but I couldn't, you know, I couldn't really emulate the beats very well. I just wrote what I wrote and put stuff together at home. And the songs that I wrote, uh, came to be 
the Wander EP that is still available on Amazon and, and Spotify and everything else. Okay. Um, but uh, one night in May of 2012, DeSane called me. Now, he usually texts or he usually texts or says mm-hmm. he never calls, never calls. So he called me. I thought something was wrong. And uh, I was in bed. Uh, it's 1230 a.m. I'm watching Nightline. So what are you doing? Um, <laughs> surfing Facebook and watching Nightline. You down for a session? Well, I'm always down for a session. Yeah, there's these guys. Uh, they're, 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 this friend of mine got a hold of me, and they're looking for a singer who sounds like Nate Dog. So you knew who I was going to call. Uh, okay, so I got dressed, went over to his place, and um, left his place, and then he took me to this other place. And were you hooded and in the back of the car, or you couldn't tell you they couldn't tell you where the place was and just show up on your own? Or uh, no. Uh, that's not how it worked. So, because I guess these guys were really, really secretive. They really didn't like, they did stuff under the radar all the time. They really didn't like people knowing what they were doing. Okay. Um, so anyway, I ended up, um, at this place, a little hole in the wall. It's actually a converted, it's two converted containers. Like you find on the back of trucks, Mm -hmm. right? Half of it was a studio the other half of it was an office, and then there was a little offshoot shed that was attached to it, and it had beds in it and a fridge and a, and a small kitchen. So it was like okay. an apartment, but it was mainly just a studio. Mm-hmm. And I walk in. I'd never seen these guys before, and we introduce each other. Yeah, this is uh, Ryan, and this is Ben. Um, ben what? Ben Haggerty. Um, Ryan Lewis. Hey, how's it going? And... Uh, we just kind of chopped it up and got to know each other. And it was, for me, it was like, it was ego busting because I'd been in Seattle music a long time. These guys never heard of, they never heard of the range hoods. They'd never heard of clubs that I always used to go to. They never heard of any of the bands that I, you know, it's like, you know, these guys, you know, these guys, other than the big guys, you know, mother love bone and, or not mother love bone, but Pearl, they were Pearl jam by then and Soundgarden. Mm-hmm. They kind of knew them. So, uh, well, I had never heard of them either. They, he had like three, he had two albums out at the time, three albums. And I had, I'd never heard of those either. And, you know, so we got through that part and Ryan starts playing a backing track. And Ben is holding a steno pad and he's got the words written out and he just started saying to me, I'm going to pop some tags. Only got $20 in my pocket. And he goes, but I want it to be like this. And I want it to be sort of like this. And the first thing that popped out of my mouth was, I'm going to pop some tags. Only got $20 in my pocket. He's like, yeah, yeah. Like that, like that. And so we figured out the, the other part and you know, the, this is fucking awesome. Everybody loved that part. They put me in the booth, stacked that four high. I came out. Cool. And what did you say? Stacked what? So, so there's a there's a technique called stacking. So okay. I hang the same thing on different tracks, and then you put them together, and it makes the makes it sound fuller. Thick. Okay. So it makes it okay. sound thick. And I had never sounded like this before. I mean, it it was huge. I was sounding good. You know, little did I know I was singing into an $8,000 microphone. 
and going through, you know, I was going through like 25 grand worth of equipment, but I didn't know that. I didn't care about that. Came out, you know, it's like we played it a couple of times. Yeah, that sounds like it's good. Okay, now there's this bridge part. I wear your granddad's clothes. I'm wearing all your hoes, but I wanted to kind of like go like this. And so we talked about it. And I, I wear your granddad's clothes. I'm pulling all your hoes. I'm in a hand coat from that thrift shop. We got that all worked out. Went in the studio. I went in the booth. Stacked those up. Boom, we were done. And it was like, wow, this is really good. This sounds really good. They really liked it. I thought it sounded great. And they cut me a check and I left. And how long did that experience take? Uh, From the time that I first went into the booth to the time that they cut me a check was 45 minutes. And you went to work the next day. Nobody thought anything of it. My kid, my, my youngest kid had was living with me, sleeping on my floor. He didn't want a bedroom. So he just slept on the floor. I came back from the session. Oh, how'd it go? Because <laughs> he had heard of he had heard of Backlamore, but he didn't tell me anything about it. And so, yeah, nobody thought anything of it. So three weeks later, um, no, a month later, I'm taking both my sons, dream of a lifetime, uh, took them to Hawaii. My oldest son had graduated from uh, community college, and my youngest who wasn't supposed to graduate high school at all had graduated. So that was the deal. So we went to Hawaii and had a great time, came back a week later and uh, went back like nothing was happening. July, first part of July comes and I'm walking up the stairs to go to work. My phone rings and it's, it's Ryan. Hey, what are you doing? Uh, I'm going to work. Right. Okay. So we're doing a video for thrift. And at this time, it was like thrift store. Was I kept saying thrift store? So, yeah. Well, we're doing a video, and we thought maybe you'd want to be in it. You want to be in it? I don't know. I, I, if I can get the day off. And so I went up and talked to my boss and told him about it. And he, so he gave me I had sick days, and so I got the day off. And uh, their manager comes and picks me up in this long stretch. I think it was like a 78, 78 red El Dorado cream interior rag top. Ooh. I know, right? Ooh. Picked me up and and we, you know, he's, you know, his name is Zach. And so you're their manager. Yeah. Manager. Really cool. So what do you, how do you do that? How do you be a manager? Well, I do this and I do this and it's like, okay. And at the time I didn't think very much of it. It was just small talk, but I was asking them these questions because you know, here's someone who's who seemed to be more in the entertainment business than me because he was managing somebody. And I was kind of looking for that kind of guidance and stuff. Well, he took me to the store, um, kind of second in pine, called Leroy's Menswear. And it was a little hole-in-the-wall joint that had the reputation where all the brothers got their pimp suits, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So I walk in there with him, and I, I'd seen it, but I'd never gone in. So I've gone in looking around, and he, Zach's taking pictures of stuff, and I'm kind of looking at things, and it's like, wow, wow, this is. If anybody remembers the old Starsky and Hutch, there was a character, <laughs> a character called Huggy Bear. Yeah, this was yeah. this was Huggy Bear's this, store. 
Honey yeah. bear, honey bear everywhere. The only thing that was missing was the platform shoes, but I mean the suspenders, wild ass ties, three piece suits that were just like, I mean, they were filthy, but it was just like, you know, walk out traffic would stop period. <laughs> so Zach is looking at this one green suit and I guess he, he was texting with Ben and Ben liked it. And I was like, Oh, and Zach's like, what? And they go, I really don't like the color green. And this little voice from across the store goes, it's too small for him anyway. And there's this little guy, little guy. I mean, he had to be like five, three little guy. It was Leroy and little Jewish guy, blah, 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 blah. Talk your ear off. But he was the nicest guy in the world. He says, here, try this one. You look like you're about it. And he named a number and I put the jacket on and it worked and and he he would make the hem and boom like 30 minutes later boom we were walking out suit in hand and then we were going to the site where the where the actual shoot was in the basement uh, or the downstairs of a place on capitol hill called unicorn and there's like 25 people there 20 30 people there i don't know anybody i'd seen some people before at shows and whatnot but i didn't know anybody and uh, DJ is, they had just gotten through shooting that one part of the video where it's right at the front where he says, what up? I got a big cock and he has the fur on and stuff like that. They had just gotten done shooting that and they were looking that over and getting ready for the next shot. And while that was happening, there was a DJ there and he was playing music. And so they're playing and people started dancing and I'm looking around and it's like, oh, okay. You know, and I'm like looking around and. See, a couple of people are like friendly and who are you? I'm ones and do this. And I sang the hook on the oh, really cool, cool, cool. We all started dancing. All of a sudden it's like a big circle and we're, we're like getting it on. And everybody's like having a great time. Right. So uh, Ryan walks over and he, he says, uh, why don't you go upstairs and get changed? Cause we're going to do your part. Okay. So I go upstairs to the bathroom and I'm in the bathroom changing and I'll never forget it. I got, you know, tie bar and this tie. And I took a picture in the mirror and going, whoa, this is, this is something. This is something. I mean, I have the shoes and everything, right? So I come down the stairs. And when I came down the stairs, it was like, it, everything's just kind of slowed down and stopped. People saw me coming down. Said, oh, my God. Look. Oh, shit. Suit looks dope. That's cracking. Oh, fire, fire. You know, it's cool. And I was like, all right, cool. I'm feeling good about this. So who else is going to be in the shot with me? No, no, no one. We just want to film, film you. And I'm like, just me? Yeah, just you. Yeah, we just want you to, you know, sing the hook part. Okay. Da, 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 da. I'm going to... I screwed up. Playback. Do it again. It's okay. It's okay. I'm nervous as hell. Messed up again. Got a little farther the third time. Still messed up. Never made it all the way through and messed up the fourth time. And Ben sticks his head from behind the camera. He goes, you don't remember the words, do you? Sidebar. So remember when I said that he had paid me with a check? Yes. Rappers never paid me with a check. They always paid me cash. Right? Mm -hmm. And since 2000... The MO was the same. I'd come in, I'd sing and record their parts for them. They'd pay me in cash. I would leave and I'd never hear from them ever again. 
until like the next project, but I never heard anything about what I recorded. Right. In fact, there was one summer, it's the summer of 2002, I think. And I did work with this guy named Critical. And it's on Critical's first record with him standing up front of it. And the song is called Desperate. And I didn't know I didn't know anything about that song. Until like six months, seven months after we recorded it, I was hanging out with DC and he goes, dude, don't you ever don't you don't you subscribe to the sickness? Because at the time the internet was still young and they had message boards. They didn't really have like sites or anything, right? They had like chat rooms and site boards, right? And one of them was called The Sickness, and it was the underground hip hop thing. Well, apparently, Desperate had been the top, you know, voted the top song for like four months. And I'd never heard it. D Sane was like blown away. He couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe it. It was the funniest thing ever. So, take the sidebar. Like I said, you know, usually I got paid in cash, and poof, I was gone, and I never heard from these guys again, right? So why would I like learn all all of the song? If you know, so let's go back downstairs. Now I've embarrassed myself four different times, and now it's like six or seven times because we've rehearsed it, and we started, you know, recording, you know, to like three takes. That's it. Three takes. You want to do something else? Nope. Okay. So we did some other things with uh, with uh, with the bridge part, which, by the way, had to be re-recorded because at the time, Ben's girlfriend really didn't like the "I wear your granddad's clothes, I'm pulling all your hose" part. She didn't like that part, okay. so he had to change it. Okay. And so he didn't know what to put there, and it's like. Why not just make it incredible? Well, how would that sound? I wear your granddad's clothes. I look incredible. Okay. <laughs> so we changed it. And that's where that came from. Okay. Yeah. So the, you know, there's not much else to the shoot other than, you know, we're dancing and 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 there are little incidental things that they're they're holding. I'd never seen a red camera before, but you know, apparently this camera costs 300,000 freaking dollars. I'm like, okay, whenever. And, you know, they're filling all this stuff. We're about done. Go upstairs. I change back into my normal clothes. And I'm sitting at the bar, ordered a burger, you know, because I hadn't eaten. Sitting there at the bar, and this guy comes over. And he sits next to me, and we start, you know, talking. Yeah, this was cool. Yeah, this was really cool. And uh, I'll never forget this. He goes, I go, I really hope this turns out really good. He goes, you have no idea what, what you're in, what, what's going to happen to you, to you. You have no idea what you're in for. I was like, no. And he tried to explain to me at the time, and I wasn't really paying attention. He tried to explain to me that this record that Ben and Ryan were working on was, uh, people were waiting for it because they had started working together probably like two or three years before and had redone an EP, which is called um, Other, Other Side, The Redo. And that had generated some buzz, but I didn't know this at the time. All I knew is this guy is like, you really don't know what's going to happen to you, do you? It's about to happen. No. Should I? 
he laughed. Got done, said bye to the people that I'd met there, and here I am walking down towards Broadway to catch the bus with this orange suit hanging on. Caught the bus, went home. Didn't really think anything of it. Oh, but the last thing Ryan told me is, we're filming tomorrow. Can you come in tomorrow? I think so. Yeah, we're going to be filming on a boat. Kind of, I, you know, okay. So we had to meet up Magnuson and filming on a boat. Okay. I didn't know how big the boat was. Didn't know if it was a rubble. I didn't know anything. So I got the next day off, and I and I I hooked it over to, to Magnuson, and sure enough, met up with those guys. And so we were going out to the middle of Lake Washington. And as we're going, it's me, Ben, Ryan, and uh, John John, the camera guy. So as we're going out there, Ryan's like, you got to watch, watch. Ryan's like, watch what I'm doing. Cause you're going to, there's going to be a part where you're going to drive the boat. So I'm watching him. I'm just like, okay, you know, how hard can it be? It's like, uh, turn the wheel. Uh, how hard can it be? So we get out and then we're in the middle of the lake and Ben and them all agree. This is a good spot. So he jumps in the water. I'm going like, what's going on? Well, we, there's a, we're, we've got to film him kneeboarding. There's a kneeboarding part. But he had never kneeboarded before, ever. Oh, so so it was explain, explain, explain. Hold on to the rope. Okay, hit it. Like six, seven so, times. Sidebar: Did you ask him if he prepared for his part? No, no. No, I was okay. I was watching for other boats and had the flag. I had, I mean, I had a job. You had a job. You know, I was watching out for other boats to make sure he didn't get run over. So, um, in the video, you know, he talks about he's got that cool sweater on and he walks and he's got walk with a shopping cart and it says I got a keyboard, and then and then I bought a kneeboard. Mm-hmm. That was an amazing thing because. We had like gone five or six, seven times, and he just crashed and burned. And one, it started it slow, and then, then gunned it. Got up, and he was on the knee, and he went, yeah, Boosh. so that one second that you see in the video, that's the one second of the only time he got up. Okay. 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 We're done. So we went back and set up for another shot, which is me driving the boat. And that, you know, the song's playing on one of those little, you know, Bluetooth thing. And that's where you get the awesome. And then, you know, at the end where it shows me like driving the boat and Ben standing up in the back, we shot that like four times because it's like, the, it's going too fast. Slow down, slow down. It's well, like, you know, it's harder to keep the boat straight when it's going slow. So we had to do that a couple of times, got done. Yeah, this is going to be great. Okay, you know, everybody high five and we're leaving, right? Ryan's going to give me a, a ride up to Northgate so I can catch the bus and, and go back up north. And so, you know, I asked him, you know, how's this going and stuff? Well, it's going really well. And I go, really cool. And he couldn't believe that I had not heard the song yet. It had finally been mixed and I'd never heard it. So here we are, you know, heading up towards Northgate from Lake Washington in this Jeep Cherokee, and he turns it on. What, 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 
went, and then when the beat drops in and the sub kicks in, he's got like 500,000 watts of power in this little freaking Jeep. <laughs> Low end is like moving my intestines everywhere. And then I come in, and it was like God. And I was freaking out. I was like, oh, shizen. <laughs> So we listened to the song twice, and I, he couldn't believe that I hadn't heard it yet. But it sounded amazing. I mean, I mean, amazing. I'd never sounded like that before in any recording that I had ever done. Amazing. Um, well, the video is going to drop uh, at the end of August. We did the shoot like at the beginning of uh, the end of July, beginning of August, right? So August twenty, August twenty ninth, two thousand twelve. All excited. The day before was the premiere party, and come walking, I drive down, I'm wearing the suit and my favorite bowler hat, I'm down there with D-Sane and, and John Overly, otherwise known as Grinch, and DP is there, so we're watching it, right? And I'm like, well, we're getting ready to watch it, and it's like, I'm all of a sudden I'm meeting all these people, like his parents and some other people from the shoot, and it was like, oh, this is so cool, this is cool, I'd never been to one of these before, so I was like, this is really cool. And uh, so I'm talking to D-Sane and, and Grinch and he comes over, Ben comes over and he goes, you know, puts his hand on my shoulder, really good job, man, this turned out really well. Um, cool, man. I'm, I'm like, wow, this is nice. It's nice. Cool, cool. He goes, do you have a Twitter account? No. And, it, it, you know, he was smiling and then his face went completely deadpan. You need to get a Twitter account. Okay, I guess. So here I am standing in the middle of the room trying to set up a Twitter account. I can't choose Wands because it's taken. Or actually, I don't know if Wands is taken, but in that weird period of time between Groovebox and um, Robert Stewart Band, I kind of rebranded myself because one of my kids started calling me T Wands. T-E-E, and I kind of shortened it to T, period, wands. People go, what's the, what's the period for? The. <laughs> <laughs> T-wands, what's the T for? The. The wands. So T-wands was, was my handle, and, you know, it's like I sent a text, I sent a, a tweet to D-Sane, and then I sent one to Macklemore. Got a got account. So get done watching. Cool, cool. It's like getting ready, you know, we're walking around and everybody's high-fiving and congratulating everybody about the shoot because, you know, it went really well. And he comes back over and he goes, so you got your Twitter account? And I go, yeah. He goes, yeah, you should check it. And I open it up and it and it's, you know, my tweet was to him. And then he tweeted back, you should follow T. Wands. He's the guy who sings the hook on hashtag thrift shop. And there's like 300 things. So it's been about eight minutes since he said I needed an account. And right. he asked me, have I checked it? I was kind of like, whoa, that's kind of weird. Because I didn't really know. I didn't really know. I was just really happy because it's like, the. I mean, the video looked like, I mean, it looked way better than any other local video I had seen. Let's put it that way. I thought, you know, so the next day I'm at work um, 
and our team at work, the testing team has a, has a little, um, we're doing a little seminar and I have to give a presentation and it's supposed to drop at nine o'clock and nine o'clock, you know, I get to work at seven 30 and it's, you know, I'm telling everybody at work about it. And it's like, Oh, cool, 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 whatever, whatever. And nine o'clock comes and goes, it doesn't drop. Right. So I'm sitting at my desk and I have two screens and I'm sitting there and I'm doing some work and getting ready to go to the thing. And it drops at like quarter 10. And I have a presentation at 1030. So I showed it to my boss and I showed it to a couple of other people. I've said it like three times. It's like, oh, cool. So we go over and do the thing. And now I'm on my phone. I had a BlackBerry. So I'm on the BlackBerry. And it keeps, I know, right? And it keeps refreshing. And the numbers keep changing at an alarming rate. The first hour, it had like 7,000 hits. Two hours later, three hours total, it was in five-digit territory. I was tripping. It hit 10,000, and I thought, oh, this is over, right? Yeah. It kept going. It did like a, it did like 120,000 on the very first day. But I'm sitting there. I'm trying to give my presentation. This was hilarious. And my phone's buzzing, getting a notification every time the number change. So I'm trying to give my presentation. My, my BlackBerry's bzz, 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 bzz. I said, excuse me. And I go over and, oh, my God. <laughs> and then I had to explain to everybody. It's like I was in this video and it dropped today. And now the numbers are, you know, boom, got done with work. Yeah, everybody was like excited, got done with work. And, you know, I had really, I really, you know, I was taking screenshots and stuff and sending them out on Facebook. And this is like really cool. And it's just, it just kept going. It just kept going and going and going. So after about three weeks of this, I thought to myself, well, I find, well, the, let's put it this way. When the thing dropped, I didn't know anything about Macklemore. So I had to go check this guy out. And it's like, okay. So I, I watched the other side, the video. Cool. I watched My Oh My, the video. Oh, man, I remember that. I was at that baseball game when he did that live. Okay. Okay. Um, and, and we danced. That's kind of weird. And then Victory Lap. And I looked at Victory Lap, and Victory Lap was most, it was mostly live footage of them being on the road. And they're in a van going places, setting up and doing these shows, right? right? And one of the shots was of him standing at the front of the stage in the key arena, the basketball arena, and there's all these little lights around. It was Bumper Shoot. He headlined, he didn't headline it, but I mean, he sold out the Coliseum. Mm-hmm. That's like 23,000 people. It's not that big, but it's, it's a very large number. It's it, only like about 15,000. It depends on the configuration. Well, that's true. Okay. Anyway, anyway, it's like 20 grand, 20 K. Okay. So, um, I'm like watching this and uh, I went, uh, Oh, that's not good. Meaning, I had completely underestimated the gravity of this situation. So I did a little more homework and found his first album, listened to it, and did all this homework, right? Well, you know, you go to Macklemore.com, and it shows, like, all these dates. There's, like, 20 dates in Europe that are all sold out. This is, like, the, the second week of September. They're all sold out. Huh. Look at all these ones in the States. All these ones in like the West area, 
Portland. Two shows in Vancouver, Spokane, Missoula, Boise. Uh, Bend, Eugene, all sold out. Wow. So I think, I wonder if, I wonder if I could do, I wonder if I could go. So I sent a letter to the, to the manager, Zach, and I said, I see there are some dates coming up and it's like, maybe, you know, if you could see your way clear, maybe I could, you know, perform the song live. We'll get back to you. Two days later, he gets me back. We would love to have you. So, October 11th is the first show. October 9th was the first rehearsal. My 51st birthday. We're at the Vera Project in Seattle Center. And it's like, we're just kind of choreographing how it's going to happen, right? I'm going to, he's going to do this and then the what, 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 what starts. We decide. I'll come out when the beat starts. So it's like, boom, right when the beat drops. That's what, that's my cue. So we rehearsed it, you know, three or four times. And then on the 11th, drove down to Portland. Everybody drove in their own car. I rode with a couple of people. And it was like, okay. So here we are at the crystal ballroom, pull up to the crystal ballroom. It's like two in the afternoon. There's like 15 people in line, the first five of which all have on fur coats. What the actual F is happening right now? (laughs) Go in and do the dress rehearsal, and I'd never been there before, so it was like the big novelty was it's a spring-loaded floor. It's really, you know, it's dope. World-renowned spring-loaded floor. They packed uh, 1,100 people in that joint that night. Sold out. And it and I came on stage. They went nuts. I was tripping. I was <laughs> tripping. They were singing. They were singing like singing, right? Cool. All right. Well, the next swing, the next on the next night, we were going to be in Seattle at the the convention center next to the football stadium. Seventy five hundred people. Never been in front of seventy five hundred people before. But I just did 11, so it can't be that much different. Showed up for sound check that day. Came walking in. Oh, this is different. Stage is huge, <laughs> huge. And it's like really high off the ground. And there's a big open floor. And then way, 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 way back there, there's risers and seats. This is at the Wamu, the Wamu Center, right? Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it. And as I was like, I'm walking on stage and walking around and looking at stuff and Ryan is tuning this and, you know, everybody's, Hey, great job last night. Great job. Yeah. Cool. Cool. And as I'm walking around the front of the stage, I see this, I see this orange tape and it's in a kind of a square and in there's a box and that box has a little flame on it. And I was like, huh? Hey Ben, what's that? Oh, that's the torch. What do you mean? Well, we're having flames with the show tonight. Oh, all right, <laughs> cool. About an hour later, I'd, I mean, I'd already tested for thrift shop and stuff, so they were doing something else, and and it was like, or no, before the, the, the fire marshal was in, everybody had to clear the stage, and then they tested it. <laughs> Flame, 18 feet in the air. Okay. Nope, note to self. <laughs> Don't go near the orange tape. 
Yeah, stay away. I'm glad I'm not colorblind right now. (laughs) Don't be the brother that gets burned up. (laughs) I had a a spotless reputation so far. I was never the brother that got burned up. So, So the show starts, and I'm like, I mean, this was tripping me out. There's like two video screens on the side, big ones, you know? And it's like packed. There's a zillion people in there. Oh my God. So 10,000 hours is the opener and it starts and it's so loud. I couldn't believe how loud it was. Get done with 10,000 hours and then they do one song and then they do another song and then it's thrift shop. So he's like hamming it up a little bit talking about, and he goes off stage. I'm like standing with my hands in front of me, sunglasses, praying, praying. No matter what, don't fall down. Don't forget (laughs) the words. Okay. Beat drops. I come popping out on stage. Well, first, first of all, what, what, what? And it's like, he goes out on the scooter. He's out on a scooter because that's what how the video starts, right? He goes out on the fur coat and the scooter. Everybody goes nuts, crazy, do the whole song. And, you know, people are like singing the words and I'm trying to like walk around like a big pimping dude and doing my thing. And song is over and oh, song's over. I should go. <laughs> so I walked off stage. Everybody's like, dude, that was awesome. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, after after that show ended, because it was like way cool. I mean, it was way cool. And after that show ended, I see out at the fence, you. Yeah. You and your wife and uh, and your daughter. Mm-hmm. And we embraced and I started to cry. I climbed up the fence and we embraced and I started to cry. Because the first thing that popped into my head was you got to see it and you were there when all of that kind of started from the basement of our house in Fourth Fourth and Anderson, learning how to play just what I needed and getting their base, getting the base before I fired. (laughs) And here I was, I'd just done this big gig and we had a day off and then Vancouver was the next two nights. And then we had Spokane at the end of the Spokane show. Cause now I was writing in a, I, I had taken time off work. So I mm-hmm. used all my PTO. And so by the time we got to Spokane at the end of that show, um, somebody said, Ben wants to talk to you. And I go over and talk to him. He pulls me aside. He goes, really like what you're, what you're doing and your energy and what's, you know, added to the show. So we would like you to join the tour. And I really didn't know what that meant and wasn't, I didn't want to seem stupid and ask. So next day we're on our way to Missoula and I sent an email to my boss saying, I've been asked to continue with the tour and the dates end two, three days after I'm supposed to be back and it ends in LA. So can, and I needed two more days added on to my thing. So that was on a Wednesday. We did Missoula. Then uh, went to Boise on Thursday. Bend on Friday. And I hadn't heard a thing. 
Saturday, we're in Eugene. And I'm supposed to, that's where I was supposed to end. And I was supposed to come back, right? And be at work the next day or be back on Monday. But the next show after Eugene was the Fillmore in San Francisco. For those of you who don't know what the Fillmore is, imagine this nine-year-old kid laying on the floor of his bedroom with an AM radio, listening on a Saturday night, eight o'clock, listening to live from the Fillmore, Bill Graham presents live at the Fillmore. Tonight we're having cream and Chip Clapton. And, uh, it was like Mecca. Don't forget. To me. Uh, okay. No, I'm getting to that. <laughs> so I said, you know, I hadn't heard from anybody. So I said, screw it. I'll just go. You know, I'll just go. Got down to San Francisco. We actually had a stop on the way and, and played a, a label party above San Francisco, above wine country um, at this vineyard. And that's where I, I met um, Tegan and Sarah and some other acts, right? So we get to San Francisco and I'm, I've, I've now taken on, I walk out in front of the line or walk out to the front door, you know, walk from, from the back and out to the front to see where the line is. And I did that. I didn't do it in Portland, but I did it in Seattle because I had to get through there to get in. It was crazy. And then in Vancouver, did it again. Spokane, I went out and hung out and had to take all these pictures afterwards. And it was, you know, it was a head expanding experience, an ego inflating experience. <laughs> Huge. So that kind of became my thing. Before shows, I would go out to find the first person in line and start, you know, chopping it up with people in line. Came in to do sound check. And uh, before sound check was lunch, and I walked around, and everyone that I had ever heard of had played there because they have a poster for them. They have a poster for every every act that's played there. And walk around this one corner, it's a stairwell, and at the top of the stairwell is like a seven-foot, seven-by-four painting of Jerry Garcia. Uh... And I'm like, oh, man, Scott would love this. I took a picture of it. <laughs> yeah, I remember yeah. that. That was so, but I, so cool. Oh, four Tops, the OJs, Stevie Wonder, Jefferson Starship, um, Righteous Brothers, Cream, The Monkees, um, Dave Clark Five, Santana. Santana. I mean, every group, every American rock group that you could think of or soul group had a poster in that room. It was freaking me out. So sound check comes and. I'm like the third to sound check and watching it. I'm like on the floor and watching it. The load in is in through, had to go up the back stairs, which was a two, two tier type deal. You go up the first level and then you switch and you go up to the other. So that actually got you into the hall and, um, had loaded some stuff in and they're rolling it up onto the stage and getting blah, blah, blah. And, Ryan's got the t keyboard or the turntables going and he's like doing stuff. And I'm looking around at all the posters on the wall and it's a sold out show at the Fillmore in San Francisco. 
I remember when I was a kid, I used to listen to concerts from this place on Saturday nights. And now I'm doing a sold out show here. And those thoughts caused me to break down. I just started crying and I cried for like 10 minutes. It was a magical experience that night for me. I got done with sound check and it's funny. I'm just like, get done with sound check and everything's cool. Go down and get some other stuff out of the van. And coming up the stairs is the guy who was going to bring the Sonics back. Chris, what's his name? Oh, it's not important. I, Hanson. Yeah, Chris Hanson. And I'm looking at him and going, what the hell are you doing here? He goes, have a good show. Oh, shit, he talked to me. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so I get done with I get done with Thrift because it's always like the it's like the third song. And I start going around the back ways and ended up upstairs in the box. And there's there's Chris Hansen. And there's like the whole row is like there are people standing. There's guys standing at the top of the little set of stairs that leads down. Didn't know it at the time. Those are bodyguards. So it's like the first eight seats from where Chris was, they're all taken and they all had important people that I didn't know who they were. It was weird. It was weird, but enjoyed the show from up there and, and was hanging out with Trisha Ben's Ben's at the time, girlfriend, now wife, mother. And I couldn't believe it. I was so on a high after this and it, it was almost impossible to come down. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe when I, this is fucking awesome. And the place just went nuts for like two or three minutes, which is a long time. Two, two minutes is a long time. I had to come back out and bow again. And then I went off stage and it finally died down and he moved on with the show. The next day, because it was like really hard to sleep and, you know, we had hotel rooms. Oh, my God hotel rooms so the next day i needed to borrow the van the follow van that i rode in with the dancers and uh the string players and i was i had to find a credit union because i had gotten my first tour check so here i am wandering by the presidio lost and my phone rings you pull over it's my boss now, this is Monday. The show is Sunday. Now it's Monday. He's calling. I told him about the show. Oh, so when can we expect you back? And I said, well, an opportunity like this for a guy my age is probably never going to come again. So I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay out here. And I quit my job and walked away from 80 grand a year and benefits, stock options, insurance, anything that spelled security, I left it behind. I had like 200 and I had like less than $300 in my in my bank account. Whole bank account. And so for the next two and a half years, every single dream that I had ever had, every single one came true. And the only thing that can take it away is Alzheimer's. Because, I mean, it, you know, awards, got those. Been on TV? Yeah, a couple times. Went around the world? Twice. So I'm going to stop you 
and I'm going to say some of my sides of the story. Go for it. I always got a kick out of it when you, when you told me, you know, that you hadn't heard the whole song, even when they were recording the video. Cause I, I have no idea about how films are put together. I think they're like, well, here's the video starting and here's the video completing and we shoot it. Yeah, I know that, but you know, it's, it's, so yeah. there's this, so I always chuckled at that. The Wamu show observations. One, I was in the top 2% of the oldest people in the crowd. <laughs> Two, it's the only concert that I've ever been at where there wasn't a line at the bar because nobody but a handful of us were old enough to be in the bar. So that's where we spent most of the show because it was not crowded with it. You got the floor was jam packed. That was, that was an amazing and amazing experience. And as you know, and it, that genre of music is not my go-to thing, but that, project, whatever you want to call it, album will be old school and call it an album is amazing uh, from start to finish. It was, they, that's amazing what they did. And, um, living vicariously through you as you would send pictures and, you know, I, I, that one, the one thing that you did that I thought was incredibly cool. And I think it was in London that you recreated a photo that you're of your dad. Oh, um, actually my sister did that. Okay. I thought playing, we were playing uh, Shepherd's Bush in London. It's the first time I'd ever been to London. Give me a fancy chance to check out my accent and see how well I do as a British character. And I did pretty well for a little while, only I'll get my dialects mixed up. So it'd be like, if you, it'd be like trying to tell the difference between someone from Texas and someone from Louisiana, right? You'd know they're from the South, but, but you're not really sure. Kind of, you know? <laughs> okay. All right. All right. So, um, I knew that my dad had, uh, he had spent some time in, in Europe, in London, and he was there in 54. And I had seen a picture of him and he's standing in Trafalgar square, um, with the lion and everything. And cool. Well, wouldn't it be cool if I could go stand where my father stood? Couldn't find time to do it at that show. Four months later, we're back at London. Something was going on. There was a concert in the park. Couldn't go. Third time's the charm. Luckily, it was, it was you know, wintertime-ish. I brought the coat. Got a cab. Or actually, didn't even get a cab. Had met some, had met, um, it was a friend of the sound guy he had a girl type friend who had a friend and that friend took us down the tubes and, and you know, that we had a day off. So that's what we were going to do. We're going to take that picture. Mm -hmm. So I went and I had the picture on my phone and I was looking to see what the proximity was. And I stood at someplace and had them take the picture. And it was like the weirdest feeling for me, but I sent the picture to my sister. And about three days later, she sent it back to me and she had copied my image and reversed it. And then colorized the whole thing so it looked like I was standing with my father. And I mean, it was crushingly beautiful. Still have it. Beautiful. Yeah, that was very There's cool. all kinds of cool little moments like that, you know? 
the other living vicariously through you thing that you did is you made me stay up late one night because I couldn't miss Saturday night live. Wow! I mean, you know me, that's way later than my bedtime and we stayed up to watch it. Do you know that was, that was really weird Do you know, to see somebody, you I know to see somebody, you know, on television on Saturday night live. It was just like, dude. Yeah. That was very cool. Yeah. I was getting all kinds of messages, Facebook messages and, and messenger messages from people that I'd known since elementary school, yeah. you know, that I'd, grad, that I'd gone elementary, middle school and high school and graduated with caps from college. There were like seven people having parties to watch me on Saturday yeah. Night Live. Yeah. I was, um, you know, just knowing the history because you and I remember when Saturday Night Live was brand new and it was yeah. kind of a thing. It had become less of a thing, but you know, it's, it's still, it's one of those benchmark things, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll never forget, you know, we're getting ready to do a, do the take because it is filmed in front of a live audience, but they do two shows. And the one that gets broadcast is a combination of both shows. Oh, interesting. The, the, okay. the, the first show is about an hour and a half long because there's like way more skits. But they run it in show okay. order. And then the ones that didn't work very well, they cut those skits out. Okay. And then they 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 do they do the whole they just do that show and that's the one that gets broadcast. It is live. The second show is live. The first show is taped. But it's taped with an audience. So if you go to New York and and if you know we can ever go to a show again and you get tickets to Saturday Night Live, right? You will sit through two shows, but the second one is the one that's going to be broadcast on television. Okay. So it's at the first one, and Kevin Hart is the guest. And I've already like met Kevin Hart, tried to meet him, and you know, he didn't want people around, so that was kind of weird. But I'm standing off stage with the microphone in hand, ready to go. And I hear a little chatter in my ear and I'm, I'm, I'm going through my head. You know, my whole journey started on a schoolyard in Anchorage, Alaska in October of 1967. And when I moved to Washington in 68 or my dad moved to Washington in 68, you know, I, Went to a whole new school, third grade. There are people who will validate this for you. Last day of third grade. Jeremiah was a bullfrog. Singing in front of the whole school. You go to junior high, there's two or three different occasions where I was singing in front of the whole school. Go to high school. There's like five or six occasions that I was singing in front of the school. College, performing with a jazz group. It's, you know, getting into a band and all this other. I was going through it in my head, the whole history of everything. And it was coming to that moment that I was going to perform. And I remember shaking my head and smiling because it's like, wow, you know, it's been what a long, strange trip it had been, right? To get to this point, thinking about all my schoolmates that are watching me, you included. And I hear in my ears, ladies and gentlemen, Macklemore and Ryan Lewis. What, 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 what? You know, and I go on, I hear the, the track start in my ear, in my in ear, ear, my earphones. 
And the only thought that the first thought that comes to mind, other than don't fall down, was God built you for this shit. God built you for this shit. And I went on and we did the performance and it was blazing. Got done. Taking a break. They're starting to tear down the set. I'm walking through, shaking hands with people in the cast, go off, off the set, walking down the hall, get to the second room, which is Ryan's dressing room. And I walk in there and it's Ryan's sisters and brother and, and mom and dad. And I just broke down and started crying because it was too good to be true. It was too good to be true. Amazing. So we can wrap it up with that, but you left out one group that you didn't, that you performed in. And I'm probably the only person that owns a copy of the performance. It was after, um, since you're looking at me with a perplexed look, I'll give you some clues and it'll come to you. It was after you recorded Thrift Shop. But before any of this happened, you played a little waterfront gig. and The band was nicknamed the Mike Wansley Experience. Oh, wow. That was my, first, that was my first, that's, that was like a solo shot for me. So you, you mm-hmm. brought my daughter... Mm-hmm. A Macklemore autograph of some, like a CD or something, because she was really into Macklemore before this all mm-hmm. happened. She thought he was mm-hmm. great. And you and Ken Brooks, Pat Boyle, mm-hmm. Steve and Lucette Pearson. Mm-hmm. We have that on film. It exists. <laughs> that was a, that was like the first time. I, I I mean, I had delusions of grandeur of trying to do stuff on my own, and I'd finally taking some songs and, 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 uh, you know, taking them to a studio and got them mixed. Right. Right. Oh, we're not talking about the same thing. We're not. We're not. On the it was my, the, it was the wedding reception. What wedding reception? Edie. Mine. At the Oddfellows Club Lodge in Olympia. You. Put together a band to play at our reception. Brooks was playing drums too, huh? Brooks was playing drums. That was the same year? Yes. It was August of that year. August of 2012. Yeah, I got to play. I got to I got to play with, you know, longtime admirer Steve Pearson and Pat Boyle from the Blue Baboons fame. Excellent guitar player. Um. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> Not really, you didn't. But no, you I mean now I do. But I, you know, I remember. Um, I remember there was drama. There was some kind of drama. I don't remember. Yeah, the drama, the drama had to do with Cadence because uh, I'd taken Terrence oh, with me. Yes. Yeah. So there was there was some kind of drama, and I ran into you know, and and uh, I invited um, my dear friend from school. Sue Cross, who lived down that way, and ended up having you know having a meeting her at a at, at a you know a restaurant just off the freeway, and actually sitting and talking with her after that was over. It was really good to see her, and then the next.
next year she had to sit for her wedding. So unfortunately for me, the other thing that I can um, give you credit for is that you performed in one way or another at three of my weddings. Oh my God. I'm not going to have you back for a fourth performance. Thank you. It's scaring me, dog. It's scaring me. No. So as we wrap this up, first off, it's been a lot of fun for me and that's what it counts. Um, Coolest show you ever played in Washington state, any group, any time. What was the coolest venue you got to play? The Gorge. Okay. Okay. Can't can't go wrong with the Gorge. No, no, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> how how about smaller venues? So I'm part of a, a a notable thing, this Key Arena, which is now climate something. It's not Key Arena anymore, but that climate change. Yeah. yeah. Climate pledge. Yeah, mm-hmm. climate pledge, whatever. Anyway, we're the Kraken will soon be playing. Um, Macklemore and Ryan Lewis have the record. They have five straight sold out shows there. And I can say I performed in each and every one of them. So you've also sung the national anthem at Safeco Field? Four times. Five times. Four times. Have you, have you ever done it in Century Link? Yes. I, I did know. a duet with uh, a guy named Jonathan who sings for the Sounders. He had never done a, he okay. had never done a duet before. So I kind of had to say, why don't you just sing? And I'll just kind of go along with it. <laughs> it was so funny. Do you think you'll sing for the Kraken? Or, and can you sing the Canadian national anthem? I can, you know, that's because I learned it. Why? Because a friend of mine, how I got into this national anthem thing is a friend of mine who worked at King 5 referred me to the Silvertips. And so okay. I've been up there. I've done two seasons of singing the, singing the anthem for the Silvertips. Okay. So what I thought was being funny and you shot me no, down. It wasn't funny. It's just covering, you know, I've done the silver tips. I've done the Thunderbirds. I've done the Sounders. I haven't done the Seahawks. No, wait, I have done the Seahawks. I did the Seahawks year before last. And the baseball team, Mariners. And uh, let's see. I just did Husky football and I have some appearances for Husky basketball coming up next month. February. Okay. So, you know, and, and, you know, all this while I'm still working on trying to figure out what I sound like. It's like I spent, you know, this Martin Luther King day at home. I didn't have to work. Everybody's at home, but I didn't have to work. And I got a song idea and it's, it hasn't happened in a long time, but I wrote a song all in one day and then went and watched some television, came in here to do this. And I listened to the song. It's horrible. Which isn't, you know, that's neither here nor there. But I say that to end with this. For the longest time, I was the poster child of persistence. So if you've been through all these episodes, you know, the long storied life of me, which really wasn't that big a deal. I mean, once I got to Central, it was like I reinvented myself and became wands but before i you know was kind of an inverted or introverted television watching sports loving guy right who couldn't go anywhere couldn't do anything but at central i blew up and i could be anybody i wanted and so that persona was born and we met and 
all through school, we've always been friends. After school, we've always been friends. And you've seen me go from here to there and everywhere, always chasing that same thing. Always chasing that same thing. And then finally, when it finally happened, you were in the room and got to see it. Right? And now that it's over, I am pretty much right back where I started. Meaning, if you go on, if you go on YouTube, right, and you put in get lucky wands, you'll see a picture of me sitting, you know, sitting there, right? And I did that song. Um, it's a testament to where I came from and what I, what my life was like in 2010, all the things that happened before through shop. My life was pretty, you know, five days a week. It was, it was the same thing. Get up, get on the bus, ride to work. And I'd be on my laptop working on making beats home. Same thing. Sit at work, blah, blah, blah. Right. Come home, get in my studio, start trying to record. Right. And at the end of that video, the last thing that you see is the, is the thrift shop suit and it fades out because I had to go through all of that in order to do that. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, I tell people all the time, you have to go through that to get to this. And no matter what it is, you have to go through this to get to that, whatever that is. It's constant. And um, as hard as I tried not to end up exactly where I started, you know, I had to fight the depression of I'm exactly where I started. The only thing is, is that I've got two statues that 98% of all, all the musicians on the planet don't have. And, you know, memories that other than things like this, you know, they're locked in, they're locked in the cloud somewhere on all these photographs from different places, different shows, you know, and, uh, Every once in a while, I go back and look at them and, you know, just so I can remember and remember what it's like. But, you know, everybody gets to go to Disneyland at least once. And that first time, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like the first time you pull into the parking lot, the first time you go through the gate, the first time you leave, and the first time you drive away. I had the same experience. It just lasted two and a half years. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you, you certainly had a rich memory building two and a half yeah, years. Yeah, I mean, you know, part of the part of the come down was I had to convince myself that my life wasn't over and I was going to die. Because what do you do after right. your dream that you've had for the longest time comes true? What do you do? Well, we all handle that differently. I mean, if for those of us that have gotten our dreams. True. But and uh, I have an answer from my experience. You make another dream. And, and that's what I was going to, uh, that's what I was going to say. I didn't want to sound cliched though, but absolutely you, 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 you do, you make, you make, make another, another dream, dream and you work yeah, towards it. Cause I mean, you know, I, yeah. I remember when I was living hand to mouth and it was really a good day. If I, it was good that I could have like top ramen and then have a meat, you know, some kind of hamburger meat dish at night. Right. I remember when I remember, you know, I've, I've gone bankrupt twice, felt bad about it until dork boy Trump ran and, you know, he beat me two, three times over, but you know, money was never one of my things. And so, you know, up until 2010, 
I had always lived from paycheck to paycheck, so close to the poverty line sometimes. I knew what poverty was like. That's why I don't shit on homeless people because I was almost one, mm-hmm. right? Everybody can do something, but it sometimes takes a long time to figure out what that something is. And those things have to arrive. You know, how did, how did their shop happen? Macklemore had that rap to go with Ryan's music and then me. Without any one of those three, mm-hmm. it never would have happened the way that it did. Right. So and now I've gotten to now I've gotten past all that and it's like I'm convinced. Everything happens because uh, everything happens exactly the way it's supposed to, which may not be the way that you want it to. And therein lies the rub. Because, you know, how many times do we find ourselves dealing with unmet expectation? Right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, today I wrote a song that wasn't that good. That doesn't mean tomorrow I wouldn't write another one and it could be the best thing since Thrift Shop. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Right? You have to do the work. Yes. It's like Morpheus says in the first Matrix. After he's after after Neo saves Trinity, he looks at him and says, "Sooner or later, you're going to believe there's a difference between knowing the path and walking the path." That's what that whole movie is about. That whole that yeah. whole Matrix One is all about learning how to believe in yourself. There you, there go. you go. So this has to end because well, it just has to. Everything must end, dude. And. What with the Matrix codes? That's what? the Matrix. Matrix 3. Everything that has a beginning has an end. But I want to just say, you know, thank you for 40 years of friendship. I couldn't have done it without you. I don't know about that. We wouldn't have been friends. Well, but I think uh, you would have found your path anyway. No matter who you were friends with. Yeah. You know. It's like the song. It's like the song says. Every once in a while, you just get lucky. Get lucky. YouTube ones. Check it out. Thanks, buddy. We'll put some links. We'll put some links below for you guys to check those out. So it's easy. And uh, anyway, thank you. This has been fun. And and to quote you, see ya. Wouldn't want to be you. Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast.